Hello and welcome to School Safety Today, a podcast brought to you by Raptor Technologies. I'm your host, Michelle Dawn Mooney, and today we are talking about real-world strategies for safer schools and coordinated emergency response. We have a fantastic guest who is going to really help us shed some light on the issue, and we're going to touch on several points here today. Of course, when it comes to real-world strategies... We are talking to a real-world, first-class, experienced guest who is really going to help shine some light on this today. Mike Matranga happens to be a former U.S. Secret Service agent. He has served in a variety of roles, including counter-assault and presidential detail. He was brought on board as the Director of Safety and Security at Texas City ISD in 2018 after the school shootings in Parkland, Florida, and nearby Santa Fe, Texas. He also transformed the school safety and security priorities of the district, building it into one of the top five school security programs in the nation. It is also ranked number one in the state of Texas. Now he is the CEO of M6 Global, team of nation's top security and emotional intelligence experts providing a proactive approach to safety and security. So we're going to talk about a few factors here, prevention and preparation for strategies, how situational awareness is useful in preventing violence, the importance of school-wide first responder training, and proper planning for an effective coordinated response. Please help me welcome my guest, Mike Matranga. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. So Mike, before we get into this conversation, can you give people a little bit of an idea? I mean, obviously we've heard you were the founder of M6 Global and you were a former U.S. Secret Service agent and may have worked with the president, which is pretty cool. I'm just going to add that in as my own little side note there. But can you give us a little background on Mike before we hear from you? Sure. Yes. Uh, Mike Matranga. I'm a uh, kid who grew up uh, south of Houston in uh, Texas in the Galveston County area. Went to Sam Houston State uh, University, received a criminal justice degree from there. I then went on to work in the adult probation fields where um, at the time uh, didn't like it much, but I look back and I contribute some of the initial um, interest in human behavior uh, with that particular job because, you know, I supervised roughly about 1,200 felons over uh, a period of uh, three, three and a half years. And it was really there where I, I started learning, um, you know, different pe- people's behaviors, uh, socioeconomic status, being involved in some of these things, drug addiction, sexual addiction, uh, and why th- people behave in certain ways that they do. And so I then went on from there to the United States Secret Service in Houston. I uh, worked my way through multiple different divisions, counterfeit, Houston Area Fraud Task Force, Protective Intelligence Division in Houston, and um, was one of the first agents assigned to the 2007-2008 uh, Barack Obama campaign, uh, where he won the presidency in November of 2008. Um, from there, I came back to Houston, worked in the Houston office uh, in the protective intelligence uh, division or squad, uh, it, uh, interviewing and investigating threats towards the president of the United States and any of the U.S. Secret Service's protectees. And then went on to the presidential counter assault team where uh, I was on team five and team six, became an assistant team leader. And then after five years, went on to the presidential protective detail and then left the United States Secret Service um, to be more of a father, spend time with my wife and my kids. Um, I had accomplished all my career goals at that point and felt that it was more important to be uh, home and available to my children. 
Um, went to a different agency in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, the Department of Interior, where I uh, quickly found myself in, uh, in, in, involved in the Bundy trial, which was the ranchers who took up arms against the United States government in 2014. And I became uh, one of the lead agents for that trial, uh, responsible for 80 to 100 government witnesses during that year to year and a half trial, which the, the government went on to lose. Um, and then um, I had a, uh, a role in the search and rescue mission of the Mandalay Bay Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting October 1st, 2017, where there was over 500 wounded, uh, 57 deceased at the hands of a uh, crazed gunman uh, from a, a sniper's perch at the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino. And um, then I came to Texas City ISD May, right after the May 18th shooting in Santa Fe. And um, that's, that's my story. Yeah, and uh, we are very honored to have you here today, Mike, because clearly you have so much experience on so many levels. Um, can't imagine what you've seen and really feel honored to have you here today and give us a perspective, especially when it comes to the safety of our kids. So let's get into the conversation. Thank you. Let's start off with something that is so important to keep in line here. We're talking about real world strategies and situational awareness is something that is so key. And some people may not be familiar with exactly what that is to the level that we're going to talk about it and then why it's so important. So to start off, can you give us kind of a brief intro and definition of what exactly is situational awareness and why is it so key when it comes to keeping our schools safe? Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. So um, we talk about situational awareness in in our space um, in multiple different varieties and areas. Um, essentially, what situational awareness is to me and to other professionals in the field is that you know, being consciously aware of your surroundings, knowing who's um, around you, what they're doing, what their behaviors are. Um, when you walk into a restaurant, understanding uh, where the entries, the exits are, uh, taking a look at some of the uh, hardened infrastructure or non-hardened infrastructure in the facility in which you're at. If you're walking out to your car, um, leaving the, the shopping mall, having your head up, being consciously aware, looking around, keeping your head on a swivel, head out of your phone, which is a major distraction that we see every single day. Um, and essentially having that sense of awareness uh, that doesn't make you a targeted victim because uh, an individual who wants to harm you or potentially is looking for an opportunity to harm someone, maybe it's um, a sexual assault or uh, a theft or a robbery, they're less likely to do that when they know that someone is aware of their surroundings and they're paying attention. So that's essentially what it is in regards to the K-12 space. It applies to not only students and staff, but other community members of having a good understanding of behaviors of individuals, whether they be a student or, you know, perhaps a, a, an adult that uh, may be exhibiting certain signs or symptoms of a person in crisis. And I think that's what, you know, the topic of, co topic of conversation shall be moving forward and should be uh, for everyone is, 
is increasing that level of awareness and um, being uh, basically on, uh, on, not on edge, but uh, aware of what's going on. Let me ask you this. How would you characterize the average person's situational awareness skills? In today? One, one in to ten, maybe? Uh, Zero to ten? <laughs> probably a three or four. I think most people even... You know, I want to give the American people some credit. I do believe that uh, we're a society that is pretty good at multitasking. But um, I do believe that uh, society in general needs to increase their situational awareness. Um, you know, in modern society, everybody's carrying a cell phone. And um, I sit and I observe and I watch people, whether it be at a restaurant or, you know, anywhere, uh, you know, a shopping mall or, or um, whatnot. And, um, you know, I just observe people and, and I play games with myself thinking, OK, what what could I do to that person if I wanted to? And that's the way that people should be thinking about this is that, you know, essentially don't make yourself a victim because you're not aware that that text message can wait if you're walking to your car, you know, in a in a not a well-lit area, um, you know, don't be a victim because you're not paying attention is what we're, basically what I'm saying. What are some practical ways maybe that we can hone those skills to become more situationally aware? Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's, it's a multifaceted approach. One, don't be distracted by your cell phone. Um, you know, keep your head up, um, observing your surroundings left to right. Um, you know, what's in front of you. I mean, heck, you know, even walking across the street, you have to turn left and right to make sure that a, a car is not approaching you so that you don't get struck by a car. And so, um, you know, that's one way that we can do that. Some of the other things that I think that in the K-12 space, like I said, is behavioral threat detection uh, or, or signs and symptoms of pre-attack behaviors. I am certain that um, the majority of these incidents that we've seen, whether it be, I'm just going to name a few of the top ones, uh, you know, uh, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Santa Fe, um, and Uvalde, if people were more situationally aware and in tune with these individuals' behaviors um, and, and knew what to identify then I believe that some of these events could have been stopped. And that's kind of the key of what I want to talk about today is it's, it's incumbent upon us as a society to be aware of that. We're living in a fast-paced, ever-growing and evolving society from a technological standpoint. Um, our morals, values, and ethics have degraded over the last three decades. And People are exhibiting signs and symptoms of trauma, of depression, of anxiety, of other mental health symptoms that we're well aware of. The problem is, is that we're just not willing to report those things. Um, if you look back at the 2008 bystander report from the National Threat Assessment Center at the Secret Service, it identifies that, that in over 80 plus percent of these events from 1999, from the Columbine uh, uh, tragic event to 2008, um, these particular events could have been thwarted if we had a more situationally aware or uh, well-informed or trained uh, society. And, you know, for example, if you look at Yavaldi, and everyone always says this, 
after every single event, someone always comes forward and says, yes, I knew that this person was exhibiting these particular types of behaviors, but I didn't do anything because I just thought they were weird or they were, uh, that's just who that person was. And that was their identity. Um, people don't behave this way naturally. There's, there's usually some type of trauma or some type of mental uh, health issue that's, that that person is experiencing. If you look at um, the data that's been put out by the National Threat Assessment Center, it's, there's, there's usually a triggering event in a person's life that causes them to breach that threshold of thinking about doing something and actually carrying that out. What we have to do is get people trained to a certain standard and situationally aware to be able to identify these things in these individuals so that they don't harm themselves or others. And I, I want to go back and what I say by harm themselves or others, there's a greater likelihood of someone harming themselves than others, but it's a very thin line between being suicidal and homicidal. And so we have a duty as a society to help people that are in crisis. And I think that uh, as Americans, if we focused on helping others rather than just minding our business uh, with good intentions, then we could seriously make some, some, some big change in America in this space. But the problem is it's way deeper than that, though. I and mean, we can get into that here in just a minute. You just spoke about the benefits of being situationally aware when it comes to students. But who fills that role when it comes to teaching them how to be situationally aware? That's a good question. Um, actually, you're not going to be surprised by my answer. The answer is everyone. Um, everyone is responsible for that because we all live in unison with each other in society. Um, it shouldn't solely be, you know, dependent upon law enforcement to do that or a person's parents or a teacher or a friend or a friend's parents. We all need to collectively come together and do that. Um, you know, one of the things that I have talked about in the past is that a well-trained and informed staff at schools uh, a well-trained and informed uh, parent group or a student group is more beneficial than a lot of the things that we're seeing in the K-12 security space right now. Uh, people are more interested in selling products than they are solutions. And the solutions have been historically documented since the Columbine shooting that really the answer is a human intervention. Human intervention is going to be key. If you look at Yavaldi and you look at Ramos, this kid had a history of behaviors that were never addressed. He had a history of absences that were really never uh, followed up on. Um, you had people coming out after the fact stating that he was known to carry a bag of dead cats, um, which is simply not normal at all, but yet we fail to provide resources for those individuals who observe those behaviors to report that behavior as unusual. And so we've got to do better as a society. Uh, we can't just solely depend upon law enforcement to resolve this for us because they're reactive in nature. The proactive movement forward 
of identifying these behaviors, understanding what they are, and then beyond just that, having resources to refer these people for treatment is absolutely key. But I will tell you, you know, everyone wants to say that it starts at home. And I think that it, it, it does. But what people were failing to understand is that some of these kids that are conducting these heinous acts, they don't have the support system at home. They don't have a responsible parent or guardian that can guide them. And so we have to be responsible as a society and know that sometimes we're just going to have to pick up the slack. Let's turn to school-wide first responder training because this is a key part of our conversation today. We all know and we've heard and, and you've kind of mentioned, you know, early intervention is so key and the whole goal is to prevent something from escalating to get to a situation that will deal with not only uh, the trauma of just a situation of kids having to live through it or God forbid somebody's hurt or it loses their life. So being from Texas, you mentioned Uvalde. And of course, that's you know heavy on your heart. Texas is currently providing millions of dollars in grant funding to help schools implement panic alert technology, visitor screening, even funding to provide mental health resources. In Florida and New Jersey, we have uh, Alyssa's Law has been enacted requiring panic alert buttons. So one aspect of school safety that's become commonplace in many communities is school resource officers or police liaison. So help us understand their distinct role when it comes to scenarios like you mentioned, uh, the relationship with the students, with the school staff there and there, even the community. What's the importance there? School resource officers are an absolute integral part of a holistic solution. Uh, you know, M6 Global what we understand is that no one particular entity to include school resources, uh, school resource officers, should the responsibility fall, uh, responsibility fall upon. And school resource officers are absolutely part of the plan. But I think that where we have this misconception in the United States is that if we put a school resource officer in a building, uh, in, in, an, in an educational institution, that all of our problems are solved. It goes well beyond that. Like I said, absolutely important to have, not the final solution. And I will argue with people all day long that the plan has to be more robust. It has to involve, you know, uh, pre-attack indicators, uh, be, uh, behavioral threat assessment training. Um, it has to involve uh, technology. Um, a response component uh, and a planning component. And then it's, it's not enough to just solely have a plan. You have to coordinate and rehearse that plan. But I really feel like if we got to a point where we had a uh, well-trained staff and um, a community that was aware of behaviors that are concerning, that the majority of the risk uh, would greatly reduce. Um, you know, one of the things that I believe uh, where we're doing, you know, a disservice to our men and women in law enforcement, our school resource officers, is we're heaping all the responsibility on their head. And that's not fair. Um, you know, you, you look back at historically um, 
you know, why resource officers were put in school in the first place. And that, that generated in the 1980s to combat the drug epidemic. And at the time, it was effective, but we have a different threat in the year 2023. It started, you know, in the early 90s, late 90s, um, with kids bringing weapons to school, wanting to harm themselves initially, and then that that ideology turned to homicidal, suicidal turns to homicidal, and they wanted to hurt their friends uh, or people that may have caused them some type of anguish and, and depression or anxiety. Um, and so we, we have to understand that law enforcement is important. We have to have them, but they are not the end-all be-all solution to providing what we need in a modern 2023 K-12 security plan. They're part of it. And so, you know, um, I know that a lot of people won't want to hear that, but it's true. Um, if you ask me um, to prioritize what's most important in a K-12 security plan, a very robust counseling program with a social emotional learning, emotional intelligence component, uh, a well-trained staff, in signs and symptoms and behaviors of people that are in crisis or a single SRO, I'm going to go with the first uh, because I believe that it's uh, it serves the greater good rather than just having a single individual school resource officer. So we talked about situational awareness and really that's from all points um, in the community for students, for school staff, faculty, everybody basically connected to our schools. And then as you talked about uh, the need that they're so important, the role that they play to have the resource officers there and the liaisons, but once again, not their entire responsibility to take care of the situation because we're really all in this together. So let's talk about effective coordination of emergency response because when push comes to shove, it's really about the execution of everything that's that's laid in place and how that is executed uh, to see if you can get those results to hopefully thwart off something that's the worst case scenario. So what can schools, first responders, law enforcement, other emergency personnel do to really prepare that, God forbid, we find ourselves in the middle of one of those really bad situations that they can properly execute a coordinated response? I think that where we're missing an opportunity is that, you know, depending upon whatever state you live in, uh, you know, for example, the state of Texas, we have SB 11, uh, which I uh, contributed to test multiple testimonies on that is used as a guide and as a resource, but it's not enough. Um, you know, in SB 11, it states, and I think in majority of, of uh, states require each district to have an emergency operations plan. Well, historically, what we've seen is that people write the plan, but they never rehearse it. Um, they never rehearse it. No one really understands um, their role. It hasn't been briefed to them. They haven't been trained upon it. It's more of a check the box CYA. Um, I would say that the most important piece is having heart to heart, sit down conversations with all stakeholders. And in some cases that happens, but in other cases it does not. Um, I will tell you uh, in Uvalde, uh, we have brought on some of their staff to our consulting team because I firmly believe that, uh, you know, there's no one better to tell a story than those who've experienced. 
Um, and that's the one of the things that we pride ourselves on here at M6 Global. We have close to 400 years of actual practical real world experience uh, amongst our 22 consultants that we have. And so <clears throat> what I would advise people to do is that when you're in the process of devising and developing that plan, sit down with all your stakeholders, assess those individuals, uh, agency, individual agencies based upon response time. Uh, you know, people look at what that agency can bring to the table. Do they have a SWAT team? Do they have a Marine unit? Do they have a sniper team? None of that matters if you cannot be on scene within five minutes. And one of the things that we do different at M6 Global than most is that we, when we work with these individual districts, we sit down with those stakeholders and we assess those individual stakeholders' capabilities based upon response time, not based upon what they can provide. And in that planning process, we sit down with them and we go through and we specifically state that, you know, there may be a dozen responders who can who can get to the facility uh, in question within, you know, a reasonable, let's say 30 minute time period. But if you're not there within the first five minutes, you are a secondary responder. And someone at the district level needs to have those hard conversations with those particular agencies and delegate them as a primary responder, which would be the ones that would enter the facility, take control, execute the plan and coordinate the assets. And then someone needs to have that conversation with the others, regardless of what they can offer and say, you are a secondary responder based upon your response time. And you will go to the designated secondary responder staging area and wait on the primary responders to call you in as a reinforcement. And having those simple conversations like that ahead of time, having memorandums of understanding uh, that identify who's a primary, who's a secondary, what their responsibilities are prior to an event will 100% allow for a better, more controlled uh, response. And it won't create chaos you know, um, what we're seeing in the United States right now is when there's an active shooting, dispatch centers are just calling for an all call anybody in the area to respond. And you've got districts or you've got agencies uh, as far away as 50, 60 miles that are responding to an active shooting. They don't know what what radio communications they're they're using. They may not even have access to that particular city or county's radio comms. Um, they don't know the plan. They don't know any of that stuff. And so we talk about coordination and that's where I think that we're missing the boat is that we're just completely writing the plan and expecting that everyone is going to do what they're supposed to do. And I know that there's been an increase in training uh, and coordination of, of law enforcement since Uvalde, which is, I totally commend people that are doing that. But, um, you know, I would say that um, there needs to be more of that and it's got to be done in a controlled environment so that everybody understands what their role and responsibility is day one. And you made such a great point. You can have everything in place, but when it comes to execution, if the time is not there, if people don't know what they're doing, it's not going to work. So as we're wrapping up here, Mike, because I know, as you said, we could be here for another couple oh, yeah. hours and I would love it because there's lots to go over and uh, it, it is all so important. But if you have the ear 
say, of every school security director, principal, superintendent, what is the one thing, first and foremost, that you would tell them just do not put off doing this? I would say a direct message to them would be no one is coming. You have to have that mindset that no one is coming, that it may be you, it may be your staff that has to pull up and roll up their sleeves and get dirty, that they have to fill in that gap. Because like I said earlier, law enforcement is 100% uh, key in this plan, but we cannot put all the onus on them. We have to be able to understand that we can't wait for them, that it may be us that saves that person who's bleeding out or that just pulls them behind cover and starts rendering aid uh, during that event while we're waiting on law enforcement to respond and address that issue. Don't wait. And if you need help, please feel free to reach out to us. We will be there. So I thank you so much for having me today. And Mike, I really appreciate your time being here again today because uh, such important information. And Mike, if you don't remember from the beginning and you're taking notes during that conversation, Mike Matranga is the founder of M6 Global, which specializes in holistic planning for safer communities, workplaces, including schools. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to m6globaldefense.com. And he is also a former U.S. Secret Service agent and former executive director of safety and security at Texas City Independent School District. Mike, it has been a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been an honor. And I want to thank all of you for listening and tuning in to School Safety Today, a podcast brought to you by Raptor Technologies. If you'd like to find out more information on Raptor, you can go to raptortech.com. I'm your host, Michelle Dalmuni. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you soon.